Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. One makes you DIY and How Studios presents From Toronto, Canada Muses and Stuff With your hosts, Shanti and Lynx Part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Network of Podcasts. Music. Culture. Technology. And rock and roll. So grab those backstage passes and let's get to the show. Today's guest is Kristen Casey, author of the book Rock Monster, My Life with Joe Walsh. Yep, that's Joe Walsh, a wildly, emphasis on wildly, talented musician and songwriter. He's also a member, or was a member, of the Eagles and Ringo Starr and his all-star band, just to name a few. Yes. We spoke with Kristen about her serious long-term relationship with Joe Walsh, but as is the Muse's tradition, we get into so much more with our Muse du jour. We talk about the spiritual connection between the Muse and the musician, our mutual love of Miss P, Pamela DeBar, understanding the male psyche, objectification that's consensual, and the importance of nurturing female sexuality. We also get into what it's like to spend quality time with a beetle, her crazy bond with Levon Helm, the writing process of her book, and her journey into her profession of surrogate partner and intimacy coach. We had so much fun with Kristen and definitely believe that she is one of our soul sisters. We hope that you get just as much out of this as we did. Enjoy the show! Support for today's show comes from Simple Contacts. Simple Contacts is the most convenient way to renew your contact lens prescription and reorder your brand in minutes. I got LASIK eye surgery before I knew about Simple Contacts, but Lynx has been wearing them. Yes, I recently took their five-minute self-guided vision test online in my own living room. All you need is your current contacts and internet connection. You can use your computer or even your cell phone and 10 feet of space. And if you happen to be out of contacts, they've got an option to cover you as well. It was really easy to follow and much quicker than I expected it to be. 
The test is only $20 and was designed by ophthalmologists. Licensed doctors review all tests, so while you get to skip the pricey office visit, you aren't skipping out on the care. And if you have an unexpired prescription and need more contacts, you can even skip the vision test and just upload a photo of the prescription or your doctor's information and order your lenses. All the hard work is done for you. Remember, this isn't a replacement for periodic full eye health exams. Simple contacts tests your current prescription to ensure you're still seeing 2020 and lets you order your contacts with zero hassle. I was super impressed with their brand selection and how many types of lenses they offer. I easily found the brand my doctor had previously prescribed me and in no time they were on their way to me. I was also really impressed with their customer support team. You can text them direct and actually speak with a human. No automated robot systems to go through. The reviews really speak for themselves. Simple Contacts has been rated five stars over 5,000 times on the App Store. Their contact lens prices are unbeatable. Standard shipping is free. And best of all, we're offering a promotion to our listeners. You can get $20 off your contacts by going to simplecontacts.com slash muses, M-U-S-E-S, or enter the code muses at checkout. Once again, you can get $20 off your contacts by going to simplecontacts.com slash muses, or enter the code muses at checkout. That's M-U-S-E-S. Cool. So you open your book with a story about being a teenager and hearing Joe Walsh on the radio and just being overcome with that feeling that you had this undeniable connection. And I've definitely felt this before with musician exes who, you know, you hear them and you're like, I, I, I know this. I like, I feel this. Uh, and we've also read other books by muses who had similar experiences where they just had a connection and they couldn't explain it. Uh, what is your take on this? Is there a spiritual connection between the muse and the musician? Well, yeah, I definitely think so. I really do. And, um, you know, between me and Joe, that was really what I had felt from the beginning. Um, and I, I just, I feel like muses and musicians are two sides of the same coin. Like they sort of can't, can't really exist or flourish without each other, and and so they're this sort of ideal um, yin yang balance. You know, like you have this feminine receptive energy in the muse, and if she doesn't have um, her counterpart, you know, she's going to wither. She's not ever going to be able. She's not ever going to have the opportunity to sort of express, you know, that best side of herself or that. That just that side of herself, and then you know, a, um, a musician or any kind of creative. Um, I think the pressure on somebody who who is a creative, especially someone who's doing that for a living, like uh, you know, like a musician or whatever. And if they don't, it, it, the, the pressure and the performance anxiety and the songwriting, like the performance anxiety, just in songwriting, not necessarily being on stage, because on stage you have your fans. But you know having a muse to sort of immerse yourself in and be inspired by and sort of um, it takes them out of themselves or this projection into the future or, you know, um, that idea of performance. And it just becomes this thing that they're, they're, they're getting from or doing for their muse. And so it flows more naturally. And so to me, creativity, okay, so let's start there. Like to me, creativity is godlike. 
you know, like when I think of God, Definitely. I think of the creator, right? So what is more godlike in this world than being a creative person? You know, that is the closest I think a person in a way can get to expressing that godlike side of themselves. And if the muse is their inspiration and is allowing them to tap into that, and to sort of step out of that fear-based, ego-based, you know, um, what if I fail, or this has to be good, you know, um, or what, what will my fans think, or the record company, you know, if, if they have a muse and she's inspiring them, then it's all for just the beauty of the creation, and they can, and then that's when it's going to come out the best. And so I just feel like, yeah, it's. I definitely think there's a spiritual connection. I think that, um, you know. I, I know people, I've heard many stories, I've read stories, and I know people personally who have nothing to do with the arts and, you know, accountants. And um, um, my favorite Whole Foods clerk, in fact, mm-hmm. told me this story about when she when she saw her husband for the first time across the room and she felt it, like, in her body. Um, I mean, I think that it just... And she's empathic, I know. And she's a friend of mine, kind of. And um, so there's that. Like, it, it's a... I think it's a thing that happens all across the board, but people who, more, you know, the general population tend to dismiss things they don't really understand or that just seem, you know, weird or, I don't know, freakish or, or if it hasn't happened to them, maybe they just blow it off. And then you have this sort of subset of people in the, in the arts or the music industry and, you know, by nature, musicians, I think, are, 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 quite literally sort of attuned to higher vibrations. And then you have their counterparts, the the muse who by nature is, is sort of going through the world with an open heart and really um, in touch with her emotions, you know, I mean, really like um, bravely sort of embracing this, you know, intensely emotional life, you know, and um, it, I mean, if you're going to live that life, you and you're cut off from your emotions, you, well, that just makes no sense. You're not going to enjoy it, for one thing, and um, you're not going to be very inspiring. And so um, I feel like uh, it, uh, it probably, that sort of, that instant recognition or that sensory recognition probably, I, I'm guessing, happens more often to people like us or maybe more instantaneously, but not exclusively, just because we're just, sort of in that in that arena where we're very attuned to those emotions and those vibrations and those um oh the whole idea of something mystical existing in the world you know i mean if you're a songwriter and you're you know you don't have some sort of poetic view of of the bigger picture of life and and relationships and love i mean i don't know how um how cool your lyrics are going to be. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. The first step is just, you know, being open to the possibilities and being open to your surroundings and the people around you and everything. Yeah, exactly. And I really feel like, you know, I, I certainly was. I mean, I, even from a very young age, and that's the other thing, I think like maybe musicians and the and the women who are drawn to that arena, you know, maybe we were born with a certain adventurous spirit or, you know, a, a craving for intense experiences. Yes. Because I definitely feel like I was, but I didn't, I don't have any real musical ability. I mean, I, I'm a great dancer. That's about as good as it gets. Mm-hmm. And I, I've, I played the piano because um, I took lessons as a kid, but I didn't really stick with it. It wasn't a big passion for me, but I definitely had an adventurous spirit. I wanted to experience all kinds of things, an intense passion and an intense love. And, you know, with that, 
comes intense pain usually, but I mean, at some point, hopefully, hopefully, um, less of the latter than the former, but, um, that might be why I ended up being drawn to, um, um, just hanging around artistic people and musicians and, and that kind of thing. And so, um, however it starts or however you end up there. Yeah. I definitely think that, you know, people like Joe and people like myself were open to feeling those, um, those very subtle vibrations. And if you like, when I think about the way we met and the way I reacted when I heard his voice six years before we met, you know, I mean, I'm somebody who really likes to stay open to sort of, you know, metaphysical ideas and what you might, we used to call it new age stuff. Now they call it woo woo stuff, whatever. Mm -hmm. But you know, the idea of reincarnation is, I mean, it's really intriguing. And when I was younger, I was like, Oh yeah, that makes total sense. But I, when I was really young, I thought, no, that's crazy. And then I kind of went back and forth because it's, you know, it's a little bit of an out there idea, but if it exists, if it's a real thing, it would be the only kind of explanation for why I had that weird reaction when I heard his voice on the radio at 14. And I just knew not only that I knew him, but that we had been in love and I experienced this really visceral, you know, sense of heartache. Like, that was so shocking because I'd never been in love. And yet all of a sudden I knew what it felt like to lose that. And it was devastating and it was bizarre. And I thought it was crazy. And, and then when we met and I kind of heard that voice in my head saying, this is a man you're meant to marry. I mean, I think, um, I mean, I don't know what else. There's no other explanation that sounds logical to me. So, um, and I also feel like it might happen again in our next life just because, I don't think that things really panned out in the best possible way. I mean, we had a few great years and then things just nosedived. And um, so who knows? You know, I think back then the term soulmate to me was like this was pretty simple. Like you had one great love or one soulmate, you know, and I thought, well, this he's mine. And now I think about it and I think, well, you know, I think we all have a number of soulmates, you know, I think my sister is my soulmate. Mm -hmm. I think some of my friends are my soulmates that, um, there's a, there's that instant familiarity. I've had, uh, friends and lovers that I've met and instantly felt like I knew them even from across the room, um, not fallen in love with them. But so, and there's, I think there's a term I've read recently about twin flames and how they're like they're the one you only have one of those and they're your perfect partner and so if you know if that's a real thing again now we're getting pretty woo-woo but if joe is my twin flame i don't you know i i don't think that's how you would describe that i think that he and i had a chance for something um long term and i think that we um uh ended up teaching each other a good life lesson and then moving on to learn the rest of them from someone else. That's wow. kind of how I see it. Oh, that's incredible. I love that this path that we are already on with this and 
all of last year, I did nothing but listen to woo-woo podcasts, <laughs> and I am exactly where I want to be, and things are aligning and making so much sense, and it's, and you know, and I find, found my own kind of connection back to creator, and it's a lot, uh, it's not something that you can just sort of, I think, have a casual conversation at a party with, because a lot, most of the people, 98% of the people will look at you and go, I don't want to have this conversation, or I don't know what you're talking about. So it's so cool to be able to almost unashamedly, unabashedly have that open conversation about the connection to music, creation, creator. And with someone who completely understands everything without even like having to communicate it. It's like everything... Every point you began to make, I was like, yes, I, I completely We're agree. not in a cult. We're not evangelical, but we can still have a connection and know that these things are really happening on Earth and that there's magic. Me and Sean yeah. were sitting here just like yeah. nodding at each other like constantly. <laughs> oh, God, it's so refreshing. I can't tell you because honestly, it's like you said, y- y- at a party, you know, I'm not going to bring this up because I've done it and I know it happens. Mm-hmm. They either tune out, they look at you weird, they make an excuse and backpedal and go to the bathroom or get, you know, get the heck away from you. And, um, you know, if and you're not going to I'm not going to try to convince anybody. So I. I it's easier to just keep that stuff to yourself and then accidentally find someone who um, just sort of like this, like, um, I don't even know what possessed me to kind of be more open about it right now. I just, I just feel like, I don't know, when you turn, you know, I'm 50 at 50, you start to just say what you think more often in general. But I also, there's something about you guys. Maybe I just kind of felt like um, you would get it. And it turns out I was right. So it's refreshing and it's nice. It's nice to be able to say that stuff and be talking to someone who, who gets it, who really gets it. Yes. Well, you. our fairy godmother, Pamela DeBar, who wrote the book, I'm with the band Confessions of a Groupie, is 70 years old, and she's, you know, doing writing workshops all over, and her, she's in the process of making a book because she's really um, interested in talking about the connection between Mary and Jesus and Mary is the muse and uh, you know our friend Pleasant Gaiman says that she worships at the altar of rock and roll so um, I, I'm looking muses forward understand we, we just understand. we all have that connection we all get it yeah and you know Miss Pamela is just um I mean, she's a national treasure to start with. I can't, I I just, I mean, when I first read her book, I remember feeling like it was very validating, first of all, that there was someone who could be expressing something that I was feeling in my heart and living the life and validating it in this book. And I thought if, if no one else in the world understands this book, but me, at least I know that I'm not crazy for having, you know, just for feeling the way I do about this type of stuff. And then with every book that she writes more and more, she's such a wonderful voice in this way. Like she's, I know she's put up with all kinds of sort of, you know, um, negativity, but I think there's a huge, um, relatively large segment of the population who are just so grateful for her having this voice and saying things that a lot of us feel and a lot of experiences that we're living. And, um, and the older she gets, I think the more also she, um, she's, she's kind of an, I don't know if she's unafraid, but she certainly is courageous, you know, at book readings and stuff and just talking about her life with unapologetically and trying to explain it, being really patiently trying to explain it to a lot of people. You know, you see her in interviews and sometimes, 
I don't think the interviewer notices, but I can kind of see her just, you know, summoning patience with <laughs> some mm. of the questions or, or the misunderstandings. And I mean, I just look up to her so much and I, I'm, I'm thrilled to know she's writing another book. Um, she had mentioned something in one of the last ones that I read about a psychic or a clairvoyant person that she knows. And I was so happy to see that published, you know, because I think there's a lot of people who shy away from mentioning it. And I, that part of the, my book, when I first talked about being 14, the, the prologue, that two-page prologue, I went back and forth for, I, I mean, at least a year. I, I wrote it, and I thought, well, I'm leaving it for now. You know, I can always decide if I ever sell this book, I'll decide then, talk to my publisher, whatever. If, but I did think, you know, some people are going to read this and just think I'm nuts, and they're not going to read past the prologue. And I finally thought, well, this is my truth, and I'm going to put it in. And I think Miss Pamela and everything that she had written up until that point, and especially that last um, book that I read where she just happened to mention this amazing psychic that she knows, and, and very casually, she just, you know, she didn't, she didn't belabor the point, but she mentioned it as this, this is a thing, and I believe in it, and it's real, and you don't have to, you know, whatever, and I just, that kind of gave me the courage to put my truth out there in my book as well. I'm glad you did. I'm really glad you did. And I mean, like, I got it too. One thing that my mother and I did as, you know, a girl's day out is when I, even when I was 10 years old, 12 years old, she took me to go get her tarot cards read. We loved it. Um, oh, that's cool. So, you know, one thing talking about Miss Pamela, I just read, you know, yesterday that even to this day, people are writing on her post, hey, didn't you blow half of Hollywood? And she patiently, you know, either like, you know, says something to that, but 170 people have already come to her rescue. So she's really had to have this sex positive view ever since she was the 60s and taking it even through into the 70s, 80s. And now she's 70. Now, one thing that we really thought refreshed which was refreshing and enlightening in your book is that you spoke about stripping as a way to explore your identity and the power of female sexuality even saying that it was the mothership calling you home now there are still many people who have a sex negative view of this profession so we were wondering if you could discuss how it was empowering for you yeah, thanks. It, it really was, and I, I really love being able to, to talk about that. Um, for me as an individual, because this is going to be my experience, obviously it's all I have, um, I will say that I don't believe uh, anything, is stripping in particular, is not innately good or bad or empowering or disempowering or, or objectifying or at least objectifying in an unhealthy way, because I believe that there there is a way to be objectifying consensually, and that is perfectly healthy. I mean, um, uh so that's a whole other that's a whole other um, conversation. But uh, so when I first became a stripper, um, I was 18 years old, and I did sort of end up getting. I was a little desperate for money. I had quit meth. I had spent all my college grants and loans um, on uh, on drugs, and I I had quit very abruptly. And I needed to start paying those back. I needed to come up with rent, and I was sort of desperate. And I couldn't get a decent job selling, you know, uh, waitressing or anything anywhere. I lived in a college town, and you know, those jobs get snatched up really quickly. And so um, my neighbor had told me about it. He was a really sweet med student, and he's like, "I'm not saying that this is, you know, a great idea or or it's it's something I see you doing." But it, it, but it, there's a really nice gentleman's club. I've been there down the street, and it looks safe, you know, like you could make your rent until you could get on your feet. If, you know, he suggested it. And, you know, part of me, the practical part of me thought, well, great, you know, that does sound like it would kind of um, help me get the rent. But the bigger part of me that was really uh, compelled to do it was – 
something that was very innate in me. I was a very sexual person already. I was 18 years old, and yet I had been raised as a Catholic. There's a certain amount of just... Um, uh, it's, a lot of it is unspoken, uh, some of it is spoken, but this sense of sexual shame and, and um, women as sexual beings being uh, really just sort of disparaged. I mean, if you're a sexual person as a woman, you're just a slut. That's, you know, there's no two ways about it. Like, we're supposed to be sexy, but not, not sexual. And, and all I knew is that I had very strong, um, that part of me right around puberty started to sort of get very strong and I had no real guidance or outlet. All I knew is that it was, um, you know, I was supposed to save myself for marriage and not really think about it or talk about it otherwise. And, and that just wasn't happening. I mean, I knew, I sensed early on that um, this was a very important part of me and I liked it and I wanted to nurture it and I didn't want it to be um, uh, shamed out of me or twisted in some way. And I sensed that the um, religious environment that I grew up in and the re religious schools, you know, I was surrounded by nuns. I went to church twice a week. All my teachers were nuns. Most of them, half of them were just, you know, cra a little crazy. Um, and uh, and it just, it wasn't a, a healthy environment to, to, it wasn't a, it didn't lend itself to having a healthy relationship with your sexuality. So, um I ended up being someone who was I'd, uncomfortable being nude. Um, I'd had sex, you know, I'd had a, a handful of partners by 18, certainly, but I, um, more than a handful probably, but, um, you know, I wasn't comfortable being naked in public, I, I or not public, but um, in, even in private. So, so I went there partly to make money, but partly to face this fear and, and, and all of these constraints that I felt were really smothering me and ruining what could have been a much more expressive, fulfilling part of my life. And as soon as I walked in the door, I mean, my first day was a little terrifying. Um, I still remember being on stage. It was it was a little traumatic, but um, very quickly, there was something I, I noticed immediately from the moment I walked in the door that shocked me. And it was that everyone was having a good time. The men, the women, everyone was laughing. Everyone was playful. There was this incredible celebratory vibe in there. And, and some of the women, you know, back then, the men kept their hands at their sides. There was no touching. If it happened, it was isolated incidents in the corner, you know, um, that somebody was very careful to get away with, not like it is now. And so um, I expected to walk in and see a bunch of skeezy guys and unhappy women, and I don't know what, I, you know, and it wasn't like that at all. And so kind of my, my antenna pricked up, and I thought, hmm, this is a, I've never experienced anything like this, a whole room full of people just sort of comfortable in their own skins and and being playful with their bodies and, and their, you know, their gazes and the music. And the, I mean, it was just a ball. And so, um, you know, it took me a while to get over my inhibitions. But from day one, I knew, you know, this was going to help me get over some of the damage and the, I want to call it brainwashing, but some of that, that sense of shame attached to my sexuality that had happened without me being able to stop it and in the, and and that's what it did so you know there is a flip side to that like i did come to rely on my identity as a desirable uh woman um who had a certain amount of power and um and and uh could commodify her sexuality um you know and use it uh uh, as leverage. I mean, 
not to say there's anything in, inherently wrong with that either, but for an 18-year-old who doesn't really know all the best ways to use leverage, you know, the healthiest ways to do that, you know, I just, I became too dependent on that, that sort of um, approval and validation for my identity. But that was my, pro- that was my fault. You know, the, the club itself did not force that on me. So I, I think that I was very young. Um, and I, you know, I worked my way through that. I really did. At some point, you know, I, I stripped for a total of 14 years and I quit in my 40s. You know, I did it in three spurts and my and my final spurt was in my late 30s, early 40s. And so I had a real good handle on who I was and how much of myself was um, uh, my stripper self. You know, I mean, it wasn't it didn't define me by any means. And in fact, um the work took on a whole new uh, uh, level. I mean, there was so much there, just beyond the way that it allowed me to feel validated and um, excited and playful with my sexuality. Um, there was the financial freedom. I mean, that's empowering. I, they, I mean, there's Absolutely. no two ways about it. My parents were broke. They couldn't afford to send me a thing, and I wanted to go back to school. So I was all of a sudden, at 18 years old, 100% um, financially independent. And I had a savings account within a matter of months. You know, I mean, it was crazy. Um, the positive reinforcement, I would say, also was important. I mean, I wasn't just being told, oh, you're sexy, you're beautiful, you're hot, I want you. I was being told, oh, you're interesting, you're funny, um, you're, you're a delight, I would love to date you, you're the whole package, you know. I mean, you're, you could, you would make a great partner for somebody, you would make a great date. Like, none of this stuff, I didn't, I didn't know any of this stuff about myself. I had just been, um, you know, beaten up by a bunch of punk rockers because I'd been hanging out with a bunch of drug addicts and and drug dealers. And so my self-esteem was really low. And um, so so that was really helpful, just um, being appreciated for being who I was because I was very authentic. I mean, I would just be myself talking to the customers. And then that was the other thing. I learned so much about the male psyche in that in that work. And since I tend to have sort of a male perspective, you know, I'm very ambitious, um, just being sexual, being ambitious, being independent. Um, these are traditionally known as, as male qualities. They're you know, yin yang, I would say young, young qualities. Right. So, um, I didn't know anything about men. I didn't understand how they thought or, or what made them tick, but in a strip club, you talk to your customers. I mean, you know, maybe during its heyday in Vegas on the night shift, you didn't do a lot of talking. But for the most part, you know, you really did. You didn't – sometimes on a busy night, you might just go dance here, dance there. But a lot of times you sit down and get to know the guy. And so it was the beginning of what I consider now like a lifelong Ph.D. education in the male psyche and they were fascinating to me. And that's when I realized, um, you know, this is, I have always since then almost always worked in some arena where I was, um, uh, one-on-one, uh, uh, helping, healing, interacting, um, validating, um, the male, uh, perspective because, you know, they have, you know, there's something that they're getting too more than just the visual, just the you know, titillation and arousal. I mean, there's um, there's a lot that men go to strip clubs for that is absolutely valid and necessary and a beautiful part of the male experience. And so I learned all about that, and it became a passion of mine. And that's and you know, uh, 32 years later, I. I'm still working in that arena in a, in a very targeted way, and I credit those 14 years as a stripper with being 
you know, kind of my education, a, a big That's part of it anyway. So cool. I I really love that. Um, I grew up with bro- brothers, so I was lucky enough to get an insight into the male psyche that way. And then I had a really good conversation with my mom today. We went out for uh, breakfast and it was really loud where we were. So I asked to move to the front of the restaurant and the guy, you know, the server was just kind of like, okay. And then um, her bacon was like, just limp and my mom she just she just can't eat bacon like that so she's like oh it's okay I'm just not gonna eat it and I was like no we're gonna just ask them to put your bacon back on the grill and you're gonna ask for it more crispy she's like okay but then that was twice that we had asked for accommodations and then later on when we were cashing out there was a man getting a muffin and I know this sounds really simple and like what is the what is the point of this conversation but when the woman went to go get his muffin he said no I'd like the bigger muffin and nobody would ever bat an eye at that man for asking for the bigger muffin. But we kind of got a little bit of a, "Mm," when we asked to move and get our bacon crispier, but I said to my mom, no more. I don't care if I seem like a bitch or, you know, I'm, I'm not. I said, thank you. When we moved in, we said, thank you. When they got our bacon crispier, but we have to speak up for ourselves and we need to go after things. And as women, we're seen as pushy and cranky and is she this? And as men, that's just a thing that men do. Nobody bats an eye if a man wants to move spots or get his bacon crispier. So yes, that, that, that look into the psyche. And I've been trying to cultivate my young lately. I also- yes, oh, I, I think your analogy was perfect. I don't think it was like over simple. I mean, that's a thing. Like in these tiny little ways and big ways, of course, like asking for the promotion or, or whatever. But when you really take, when you really look at your life and your day to day life, it's very telling that 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 your mom didn't want to send the bacon back. And I tell you, the, the, the percentage of men who, who would hesitate is very small. It's, you know, so I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I love hearing this. I have to stay conscious, you know, 24-7 um, that I don't accidentally fall into that habit of, oh, it's easier not to, or I don't want to be perceived as, you know, pushy, blah, 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 um, because it's so ingrained. And I, I love that you're, you've made this commitment. And I, I think that if if... If these modern times um, are going to have a real effect on how women experience life differently from here going forward, it's in those small, those 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 little moments, or per se, they're not little, but you know those those day to day moments. And I just think that you doing that is inspiring, right? Like your mom sees you, or the woman at the next table, and then they, you know, and and then they start doing it, and then it snowballs. You know what I mean? I think that's beautiful. Yeah, this needs to become the norm for women. Yeah. I also find it really fascinating, you know, you talking about uh, your career as a stripper and how uh, positive it was and how everyone's happy there. And it made me think about, you know, all the Hollywood films or TV shows that you see that take place in strip clubs. And like, I've never really seen what you're speaking about. Like, you never really get that like happy like this is a workplace and it's a happy workplace and it's empowering. It's crazy that the narrative for like strip clubs has always sort of been like a negative or people think that's, that's not where women want to be. It's like uh, where women end up or uh, on their way to something else, as opposed to no, like this is my career and I'm happy in it and I'm it's positive and my experiences are positive. 
Yeah, it is crazy. I mean, it's it, it really feels to me offensive whenever I see yet another um, portrayal of of that world that is and and to be fair there are clubs and there are time periods like you know I, I was dancing during the recession in 2008 and I saw the changes and there are um, you know so there are periods of, of time dependent on the economy or what club you're in or what type of club you're in or or whatever where you know some of those portrayals aren't too far off the mark but it's a mix it is it is one it is one shade or um uh of of something that's much bigger and especially in the 80s um and again also in vegas in the 90s um not only was there that celebratory side where everyone was having fun but it was at least where i was working the primary experience i mean it was um you know, 80% of my time there was not only fun, upbeat, and positive, but some of my, some of the best times in my life took place, you know, at Sugars between 18 and 23 in those first five years. Um, yeah, it was, we were a family. It was fun. And um, uh, it's it's really a shame. I don't know if it's like because it's male. It, you know, there's something about this um the woman in in trouble and, and needing saving and you know the um uh you know it's it's definitely more dramatic i guess um to show that side um and there's a there's a puritanical streak certainly in this country that um even if someone tried to put out a movie where they where the strip club was neutral or or a positive or partly positive experience some some producer would be like, oh, we can't put that out. You know, the, the, we get too much backlash. You know, we have to. And, I, you know, I, I remember just very recently I was talking to a producer friend of mine, and I was telling him about the script that I wrote, and it never, it never went anywhere. Um, it did well in the contest, and I was just, he asked me about it, and I said, yeah, and then, it, and then it ends when I start work as a stripper. It's based on a year of my life, and it actually ends at age 18 when I get the job stripping, and that's like the re- sort of redemptive moment. You know, like I had this horrible spiral with meth and the punk scene, and then I quit, and I end up stripping, and that was like the big finish. And he just, he had to do a double take. He was like, what did you just say? You ended a script with the with the with the heroine becoming the uh, the main character becoming a stripper like who does that he was gobsmacked and um, he thought it was brilliant and he's like that's uh, you know and, and I, I can see, he didn't say this but I got the sense he was like well I can see why no one bought that because the world wasn't ready for that mm-hmm. um, but yeah that to me and here's the thing about that stripping saved me at 18 I was dead broke I was I was bankrupt uh, emotionally um, self-esteem wise financially I was in dire straits and it saved me overnight it saved me and it did it again when Joe and I broke up and I was heavily in debt I was a severe drug addict or alcoholic at the time I'd mostly given up drugs and I had one skill and I could pull myself together and within 24 hours have money in the bank and money to pay my credit cards and money to keep a roof over my head. And when I was 39 and I had been in real estate for eight or uh, seven years at the time, and I had a lot of ups and downs, you know, some, some huge windfalls and some terrible dry spells because that's real estate. Um, I, had, I was experiencing a six-month dry spell when gas was for something a, a gallon, and I was showing property all over the lake area to people who never were buying anything. So I was going broke. I was spending $50 on gas every weekend and not selling a thing. I didn't know. All of a sudden at 39, I, was, um, I didn't know how to pay my – I didn't know where next month's 
rent was coming from. Things were bad. And, um, you know, I've been sober for 10 years by then, or close to it. And uh, I thought, I can't believe this, but I'm going to have to go back to stripping just to cover next month's rent. And, um, I mean, I I was a grown woman. I was an adult. I thought, you do what you have to do. I I can do this. I'll do it until I can sell a house, whatever. The day I went back to stripping at 39, within a matter of hours, two hours, I realized, where have I been? (laughs) This is home. Not only did I have cash in hand, you know what it's like to try to sell houses seven days a week for ungrateful clients who don't pay you a dime but will happily eat up all your gas, and then you walk into a strip club and somebody gives you $20 for three and a half minutes of your your time and energy, it feels really validating. And anyone who tells me that stripping is objectifying has never been a realtor because I was far more exploited as a realtor on a daily basis than I ever was as a stripper, and that's the truth. Amen. That's yep. so cool. I do have a friend who um, was working just you know, a regular job and yeah, being exploited at a regular job by like yeah. whatever every day. And then she did some cam work and then she herself was working at a cocktail, like, you know, a gentleman's club and then cash, 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 bills paid, a couple of hours of work done. Yeah. But all of a sudden there's a problem with it and she gets shamed because now she's using her her body and her stuff to like exploit oh it's just the double standard is insane but i totally understand and i've seen how it can be empowering so thank you for sharing that and i think it's going to be really enlightening for people to hear that as well thank you thank you for giving me a platform to say that i've that's something i've wanted to to say out loud um for a very long time (laughs) (laughs) so speaking of um you know we were talking about men a little bit um you went from brad in high school so you know regular brad to suddenly being with joe walsh and at such a very young age throughout the book there's so many talented musicians and actors who entered your world um also i remember a part in your book saying that you know chaos and all of that was okay it was boredom that you didn't like um so how surreal was that for you in your early 20s were you ever starstruck and are there any specific or special memories of meeting certain actors or musicians that you'd like to share with us um, yeah, I mean, it's funny because coming from the punk scene like I had, you know, there was sort of this 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 um, sense that uh, there was no sort of VIP or backstage area. In the punk scene, it was very egalitarian, you know, like there was no backstage and you go to see a Black Flag show or GBH or, or some local, you know, like a, in Austin, the Ascenders. And the guys in the band are, are you know, hanging out with um out on the floor, you know, they're not hiding out backstage. So I always had this sort of, I didn't, I didn't ever have this sort of pedestal, put the guys on the pedestal attitude. And yet at the same time, um, every now and then I would just find myself like sort of uh, doing that um, double take, like, like, okay, when I met Ringo Starr, what I had been thinking all day when Joseph were going to go meet um, Ringo was, oh, how fun. I get to meet a Beatle, and look how excited Joe is. Like, clearly he has such a strong affection for this man. I mean, they weren't super, I don't think they were super good friends back then, but they really just had, they had a really sort of nice bond, and Joe looked up to him, and I could see how excited he was to introduce us. And so that was half the fun of it for me, plus I was like, oh, for the rest of my life I can say I met a Beatle. That's kind of cool. And then he just, he enters the room, and honestly, I just, it, 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 it just hit me right then. 
And I don't know if it's an energy field he has around him because he's really personable. But it just hit me. Wow, that's a, you know, that's Ringo Starr. And, and then he comes up to me and kisses. Yeah. And he comes up to me and he kisses just as natural as can be, you know, the, the both sides of my face. And, and he laughs it off like, oh, well, I'm from France. And, and I was just sort of speechless. And I was completely caught off guard by my speechless. I, I thought I was going to be like, oh, you know, the cool nothing gets to me, you know, punk mm-hmm. rock chick, but no, um, I, it did affect me. And, um, and, uh, I think the whole tour, but m- less because he was a Beatle and more because he really does have this amazing energy and it's very inclusive and it's very loving. He has a very loving vibe to him. And I, I think I just maybe I picked up on that. Um, there were other times, like I remember Joe was really excited one day he was going to get a call from Quincy Jones. And at the time, I didn't really know who Quincy Jones was or how powerful he was or how revered. And um, I mean, I had a vague idea of who he was in the music business. Um, and I forget why he was calling Joe, but Joe had been waiting all day for this call. And I happened to be closest to the phone and it rang. And, and so I, I got nervous picking it up and just saying, yes, I'll, I'll go get him. You know, like I was, <laughs> and I was starstruck um, just sort of based off of, off of Joe's, because um, it was rare that he was ever um, intimidated or starstruck. But I remember with Quincy Jones, he kind of had that. Um, I think, um, oh, and for some reason, Lionel Richie, but just, you know, I love the Commodores, and I just, there's something, and I didn't quite realize until Joe dragged me over and introduced us all of a sudden, and I realized it was shaking his hand, and it just kind of hit me all of a sudden, like, <laughs> you know, he to me, um, it, there's something... I don't care how big you are. Like, I mean, I, like Tom Petty is huge, right? And um, uh, Pete Townsend, who is lovely. I, but I was not someone who would spend night after night listening to their records over and over and over again, you know? So it was, um, but with Lionel Richie, I was like, that kind of stuff that he had done, his career was huge to me. You know, anything sort of soul music, funk music, you know, that was always my thing, much more than like rock music. So I could meet the biggest rock stars in the world and not be too starstruck, um, except the Beatles were huge to me. Like Sgt. Pepper was like life changing for me. So those, yeah, those were some of the more isolated incidents, I would say. Um, the funner ones, I mean, funny enough, like Stevie Nicks, you know, I have a whole story about her because I grew up on MTV. You know, I was like 14, 15 or whatever in high school. I forget when it started, but those formative years where you're, you not only have access to radio and records, um, which I couldn't really afford, but MTV was showing you, you know, not, not just pictures of these musicians, but the way they were dressing and the way they moved and danced. And you got to, and like even the DJ, the, the MTV VJ, I guess you call him like Nina Blackwood. Like I was, I was kind of a fan of Nina Blackwood and then I got to meet her and it was actually kind of a weird meeting. Um, I found out much later that, um, you know, she and Joe were good friends and I think she was just worried about, um, how badly he was partying. Um, but so she never did stay at the, at our house long, but she was someone I had kind of like modeled myself after to some degree at 14. And here I was meeting her and Stevie Nicks and I, and, and, um, uh, so those were two of the better ones. I, I didn't get to meet as many women as I would have liked to. I would have liked to have met Chrissy Hine. Um, she was a good friend of Joe's, um, uh, you know, some others. Um, but, uh, Dave Edmonds, that was huge to me because I used to strip, for years, I had been stripping to his song, and I just, I'd always thought, you know, this guitar sound is the sexiest thing in the world. And then I recognized it at a rehearsal, and I was like, I know that sound. And I look up at <laughs> Dave Edmonds, and then he, he and his wife become, you know, two of our best friends. So that was, um, I have to say, 
Dave Edmonds um, and his wife, Cece, um, also leave on Helm because for some reason we just mm-hmm. had a crazy instant bond and I, I don't even know what that was about to this day but that we just did and I adored him and um and also his you know I was a huge fan of the band and Scott Baxter as well Doobie Brothers and Steely Dan are two of my you know as far as rock music those were a couple of my favorites and oh yeah us Skunk too and our I, family I, is huge and yeah in love with them right like I mean the fact that he was in those two bands alone sort of makes him iconic to me and yet you know, he and I had a really lovely friendship, and I think the skunk of all people in that whole book, in that whole period of my life, I think he probably saw what was happening and how overwhelmed I was and how probably potentially um, vulnerable I was to the drugs and the lifestyle. I mean, he didn't interfere, um, but, uh, yeah, I wasn't starstruck around him or anything, but it was very, for me it was very special to have um, him around. I really adored him. I, I loved our friendship, and um, so the whole thing was, you know, it was almost like I had this fairy tale that just came with all this other amazing stuff. I mean, it, it really, I would have been happy to just be in love with Joe if he were, you know, uh, you know, a, a, a fry cook, for probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, but his lifestyle was really fun, and I got to meet, you know, dozens of amazing people. So many so cool It was people. inspiring. Yeah. And speaking of some women that you did actually get to meet, you met both Ringo's wives, first Maureen and then Barbara. Uh, would you talk a little bit about them? Yeah, they were great. And I, when, to use the word inspiring yet again, one of the things that I loved and I'm so grateful for in regard to meeting them was that I sort of would silently watch them and how they, how they, embodied this role I mean I don't think I was very good at emulating it at all I would have liked more exposure to it but you know they were different but they were both they were true rock star wives right I mean they were they were kind of as as elevated in that way as you could get and um, while Barbara was sort of she had this very calm presence she was somewhat I want to say demure I mean she's very very down to earth and friendly, and in that she had this calm presence. She wasn't, you know, she didn't dress wild and gypsy-like. And then you have Maureen, who had this very sort of, I mean, just the vibe around Maureen was very sort of colorful and, and reminiscent of the 60s. Or, you know, like, she just had this, she exuded a certain sexy femininity and a strength at the same time. I mean, I could have followed Maureen around probably just like a fly in the wall for a year and just watched her every move because I really admired her. I mean, she, she was very feminine. And at the same time, she was married to someone who, you know, who was a very strong personality. Her husband, Isaac Tigert, who started the hard rock, you know, she was Ringo's wife and then she was Isaac's wife. And, and the, and to watch her with Isaac, who was a very strong independent man and to watch the way he just sort of would, you know, follow her around, or at least, you know, when she came to retrieve him from our, from our room one night, the way she, all she had to do was, was just walk in the room. And he just was like, he was up, he was out the door with her. And I thought, you know, I don't know how she just did that, but I want to learn how to do that with Joe. And I never did, but it, it was a, it was a glimpse into, I think, an empower, being, being a partner of someone who's really famous or really powerful or, you know, the guy who started the rock, the, the hard rock cafes, he, he had a certain 
I mean, he he had a presence. He he owned every room he walked into, and yet when Maureen walked in, then she owned it. It was, totally. it, it was a, it was an, it was the dynamic was something that I that I could only strive for to be in a relationship. It was everything that was wrong with my relationship with Joe, which was that I didn't know how to be strong um, in my own self in a relationship with him. It was, you know, he had all the clout and the um, experience and the presence and the, and the, you know, that, that magneticism. And I was just, I became his shadow. Whereas Maureen was with an equally strong man and so was Barb. And yet they were both very captivating on their own and they were in an equal partnership. You know, Ringo was not leading um, Barbara around by the nose and neither was Isaac. It was, if anything, I think, um, probably the other way around, you know, if it, it, or at least, you know, perfectly balanced. Does that make sense? You know, I just, they were really fantastic. Yes. And that's why we are so fascinated about these women and wanting to read their books, tell their stories, and now so lucky to be able to be having these conversations in, you know, with these people like you, you know, it's unfair that these women have been reduced to just a wife or just a girlfriend. And it's like, Hey, smarten up. They're so much more than that. Oh, yeah. I, you know, honestly, somebody should. I mean, I don't think Barbara's ever going to write a book. I sure do wish Maureen had. I mean, I think I've read snippets um, from other in other books, like maybe Joe Wood or, or I forget who. But, but I would have I would love to know more about her life. I'd like a whole book on her life. And um, yeah, like because this is again, this is about female empowerment. And in this day and age, um, we we have to start going there, and we need we need inspiration. We need role models, and sure, there are women like I was one of them who lost themselves completely next to their powerful partner. Um, and there are civilian women, you know, in the general public, there are women doing that, and then there are strong women who have somehow figured out how not to do that. Now I have at this point, but it took me you know thirty uh, odd years to get to that point. And um, yeah, we need. It, it, it can be done, you know, it can be, um, it's, I don't know why the world doesn't see that or why, why that would come, why would that, why would anyone think that someone like Ringo would want to be with a doormat, first of all? Exactly. Joe didn't enjoy being with me. The more I lost myself, the less he wanted to be with me. The reason he was attracted to me in the first place was because I was a fairly strong, independent 18-year-old. You know, I, I immediately started losing it, but that was the part of me that he was attracted to, and that's what most of those guys really want in their life. You know, they want a strong woman. Um, and as soon as they become a doormat or a drug addict, you know, that the, the writing is on the wall. That, that relationship's going to end. Yeah. Um, well, you're right. I, I hope that, you know, Barbara would write a book and it's a shame that we don't have something of Maureen in her own words, but we are happy that you've written a book. You know, you've, you've toured with Joe, you've lived with him and I, we really encourage people to go and read the book or listen to the audio book because it's so rich. There's so much in there you know you talk about shows that you've been to and tours that you've been on and the special camaraderie that grows when you're on tour with the same crew you talk about um hanging out with stevie nicks and inheriting some of her wardrobe um when did you decide that you wanted to share your story and what was the writing process for like for you um well you know i i think that for most of the time since the breakup which the first breakup was in 93 and then the 
the last final second breakup was 95. So for most of that time, which is, you know, 20, um, let's see, 20, 25 years, I, I think I felt like I have this good story, but I don't, I'm not comfortable sharing it. There are a lot of reasons not to share it. I'll decide, I, I'll, I'll revisit that idea a couple of years from now. And then I would, and I would think, you know, I have other stories to tell this one. There's so much, so many complications with this. First of all, my story is very intric, intricately entwined with someone else. And it, it, it really took me a good 15, 20 years to get all the clarity I needed to even think I could write the book well. And um, so one day I, and I had been writing another book. I'd been writing this other book about um, the one year of my life that I had um, left home and started college and gotten into meth and then started stripping. And I, 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 it wasn't very good. I wasn't as good of a writer then. And so it never did get published, but that was a book I'd kind of been writing off and on for 10 years or so. And then in 2013, I was actually, um, I, I had a couple of weeks sort of stuck at home. I was recovering from surgery and I was watching a bunch of movies and I saw this little indie film with Michelle Williams and I, I couldn't tell you what it's called right now, but she plays the wife of, um, Oh, I, I forget the name of the actor even. Blue Valentine. Uh, but, mm, no, oh, no, the one with um, Seth Rogen. I know. What yes. You're talking that's about. the one. Yes. This waltz or yep. something. Yeah. Yes. Ta- yes. Yes. That's it. Something waltz. Yeah. So there's this, there's this aspect to that movie where she, you know, she's sort of sexually unfulfilled. Like she loves her husband. She's not, but, but they're a little incompatible that way, you know, and she, she tries, she loves him. So she just tries to, you know, you can kind of see her telling herself, oh, just get over it. You know, you know, you, you're trying to get him to be more, more aggressive. He's not going for it. Just, you know, you lo- and you could see they had this great love, but she was becoming more and more um, frustrated. And that aspect of my story um, that that um, owning your your sexuality, your authentic sexuality, being unapologetic for it, and getting those needs met, and the conflict that women have, um, you know, being nurturers or being partners, and and not being able to speak up or being stifled or or, or um, censored when they do try to speak up, um, you know, it's it's a real thing. I'm not the only one out there who went through that, and so I had not only is recovery. Um, you know, my my years of addiction and my years in recovery are the most potent influences on who I am today. And my the depths of my addiction were in a relationship that affected me to a degree that um, all my relationships since then were affected, um, most of them negatively, because I was so afraid of losing myself again that um, I had, it took me a very long time to be able to even be in a healthy relationship. I, I would do a lot of, you know, come here, go away, come here, go away. You know, I had a sort of a, my attachment style was was like a, um, a, a ping pong match or something. So I, I, um, I, I knew that I wanted to write about uh, addiction and recovery, because I felt like that, you know, we need more voices, you know, we need to, to talk more about the core causes. I wanted to in, infuse the story with some of my childhood experiences and, and then the experiences of 
living with Joe and my addiction, my, my pattern of addiction then, just as, as one story sort of illuminating how some people from a middle-class background, you know, uh, a, a quote-unquote normal background, become addicts. So I always had that story, and I had, I had um, written some short stories around that. And, in fact, I, the Joshua Tree story from the book, I wrote that as a short story, and that was actually one of the first ones I ever had published um, in this great lit magazine called um, The Foliate Oak. Uh, but but I did not think I was going to write the book. And then when I saw that movie, it just affected me so much that all of a sudden I thought, this is not, this is not an aspect of a woman's experience that gets, that gets any attention. I was so shocked and so happy to see it addressed in that movie. I was overcome with this just this knowingness that it was time to write my story, not just because I'm passionate about addiction and recovery and getting, you know, starting that conversation or adding to that public conversation, but I could infuse it with the story of female sexuality, which is, you know, my bigger passion probably. And that's when I knew not only that I should, but that I kind of you know, I, I almost felt obligated at that point. I, I felt like as a writer and a memoirist for me to not write this story now that I even have an, yet another important angle to include. So I decided in, yeah, the spring of uh, maybe January or so of 2013, and I started writing it later that year. And, um, you know, I was really busy with work at the time. I was traveling a lot. And um, so for the first nine months, I wrote every day off I had, I would sit down for five to eight hours and write. It was sporadic, so I didn't get too far. And then business slowed down, and so I just buckled down and started writing full-time for the next nine months. So for 18 months, I, I spent writing the rough draft. And then I put it aside, and um, I had some other issues. The surgery that I'd had uh, turned out to be botched so badly that I had to have a couple more surgeries. So the next couple of years were sort mm-hmm. of um, uh, a bit of a whirlwind of trying to get my my um, breathing back because my nose was collapsing, going through a lot of surgeries, a lot of stress, spending all my life savings and um, trying to polish the book. And I had an agent and he sold it in October of 2016. And by then I had just started a new business as an intimacy coach and surrogate partner. And I was slowly learning the business over about six months or so. And the same month I sold the book, I had my final surgery. My nose was rebuilt. I could breathe again. I had a book deal, and my business exploded all within, like, three weeks of each other. And that was, like, two years ago. Yeah, and then the book came out in March. And um, my only complaint, honestly, is that everything in my life is kind of going so well. I don't have enough time to dedicate to any one area. Um, I would love to be doing more like book readings and, um, you know, like a book tour and more interviews and stuff. And I would love to be, I would love to see every client that calls me, but I'm right now I'm just divvying up my time. And um, it's been an amazing experience, to be honest. I, I, when the book came out, I was, I really was unprepared. I, I, I wrote the book as a passion project. I don't know if I ever really thought it would get, even the, even though I was under contract for a long time, when it came out, it just sort of hit me like, oh my gosh, I've done it. Like I've, I, wow. And uh, yeah, and then, and then the, it's, it's been, a, I've been getting a lot of really positive feedback because I didn't really know what to expect. So, so I'd, I'd like to also find time to write my next one, which is going to be more about um, 
what I went through in the 10 years after I got sober and, and the intimacy issues that I struggled with and how to start having relationships and dating and all that. But, um, you know, my process is basically to spend every waking moment that I, that I'm not trying to, you know, work and keep a roof over my head, just at my desk writing. Cause I'm not a fast writer. It took me from, it took me four years to get this one, right. So, wow. That yeah. is that insight into <laughs> how long it takes and how to divide your time because I can I feel like I can relate to you in the sense that you have a job where you are dealing with people interacting with people helping healing nurturing but then you also have your own creative side of yourself where you like to write and um, just and create and be a creative person and sometimes you're like well and it's a passion thing that has turned into a job as well. We can kind of relate with the relate podcast, a passion project that's turned into a job while still having another job. And it's like, well, I really want to put my energy here. And then you kind of realize that, you know, I know there's just like people that go, oh, like, I'm so busy all the time. And you're like, buddy, you don't know busy. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then I kind of feel like a jerk complaining about it because, you know, there were years in my life where nothing was going right. And I actually had something to complain about. Now my biggest complaint is that everything is going right and it's more than I can handle. Yep. So, totally yeah, hear you. It, it's really like I don't think that a lot of people, maybe certainly from um, I'm not exactly sure how old you guys are, but I, I know that you're a younger generation than me. And, and the generation older than me, they don't, they're just not used to women taking on so much. So it's almost like not even my own parents really kind of grasp how busy I am that I've, you know, that it's 24 seven. I feel like I'm like, if I were a guy, maybe, um, as a, you know, maybe I just got my medical degree and I'm working as an intern around the clock in a hospital. Nobody, nobody would expect me to you know, have time to chat or go for coffee. They'd be like, oh, he's like, you know, so ambitious and he's juggling all this stuff and his, you know, school and his work and his um, whatever. But with women, I don't think, I, unfortunately, in this day and age still, I don't think people really quite grasp how, um, you know, you've got the day job and the creative thing. And, you know, uh I don't know how anyone with children does it. First of all, like Me I don't either. have any. I don't even have a pet right now, and I feel like I can't. Same. I can't keep up with everything, and I just don't. I don't know. Do you guys feel like the people in your life understand how how much you're taking on and how? how busy you are well we understand yeah. the two of us understand yeah, i think my partner understands because he's watching that i'm you know get home from working eight hours at one job and then i'm eating standing up to about to go and rush off and in the meantime too i am very involved in you know my yoga community and my self-care routines and things like that so i'm making sure that i'm taking time to rest and meditate and exercise and things like that and um, so I don't know how it seems that in a way that I've been able to just find more minutes in a day to get things done, but it's definitely a shift in perspective and people close to me, um, realize, I think what it takes and yeah. the ones that well, witness it. Yeah. 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 Well, that's good. And I, I applaud you for doing the self-care because for me, that's always been the first thing to go, right? Like I, well, I used to have five workouts a week, but now I have three and now I have two and now I have one. And the, you know, that 20 minutes or 40 minutes that I'd like to stretch and do yoga and meditate in the morning, you know, now that's, you know, 30 minutes, that's 15 minutes, that's 10 minutes, that's three stretches in the hallway as I'm walking, you know, mm. going out the door just to, <laughs> and, and, and then I get mad at everyone else. And I think, well, I'm the one who did that. I'm the one who, who decided, you know, um, 
being there for someone else is more important than my 30-minute morning routine or my third workout of the week. Um, so it's just like ordering the, you know, ask, sending back your bacon. You know, it's like a, yeah. I have to remind myself I'm the only one who's going to set those boundaries. Exactly. And I have to make sure that I'm not being resentful of my partner who works four days a week and has Thirsty Thursday and <laughs> at work and tells me that, oh, we just opened up the beers at work. And I have to make sure I don't go, well, that's so nice for you. You know what I mean? Like, because I'm the one that that decided to do all of these things. So, you know, and yeah. he's relaxed and happy and he's not running around all the time. And he, that's good for him. And that's good for me. So I just need to keep that perspective. Yeah, that's a good point. I should remember that because I yeah, because I've been there, too. <laughs> um, you said in your book that in Joe, you discovered one of your discarded parts. Now, we loved the way that you used language like that. And it was very clear that you've studied and analyzed people. Two questions here kind of in one is I'm very curious um, because in you said that Joe was always a, a supporter of your writing. Did he support you in sharing this story? And then um, this analyzing of people in this sense, is this that part of why you decided to go into therapy and start on that journey? Um, to, to the second question, I will first say yes. It's, it's absolutely a part of it, you know, I, um, I, but I'll address the first question. You know, Joe was very supportive of my writing and, um, I, I always liked to, the chance to, to state that outright. His lifestyle was such that it, it wasn't, in some ways it probably was very conducive to me writing except, um, uh, or at least getting started because I didn't have to work once I moved in with him, except for our lives really did revolve around his work and his needs and his friends. And, and uh, you know, but I had the opportunity to sit down and write and to say, you know, I'm going to not join you guys downstairs in the playroom and I'm going to be in the office all night writing. I, you know, I, he never... He never um, tried to pull me away, and he always he bought me this amazing typewriter, and he encouraged me in many ways, you know, to to further um, any of my creative passions. And I just, I really just wanted to go downstairs and do coke with everybody else. And so he was, yeah, he was very supportive, and um, the lifestyle was just too compelling for me and the strength that the or lack thereof that I had the inner strength that I had and the commitment to my writing like had I been maybe a little bit further along um I probably would have made more of a commitment but you know even if I had sat down to write back then um the the coke just really hijacks your brain in such a way that the creative flow which for me is something it's like a constant I mean I need solitude every day to let my mind wander and get into that flow I don't just I can sit down sometimes for five hours and it will kick in um, but back then it was a little less accessible and the more coke I did the less access I had to that to that state of flow because I couldn't be present I was constantly like what can I do next what can I you know what what fun can I do next what can we talk about next what record can we play next you know it was just never in the moment it was never um, able to just tap into any sort of higher realm or imaginative, 
you know, inspirational sort of thread. Um, and I certainly didn't want to look at any deeper themes in life because then I might have to face, you know, the, the wreckage that my life was becoming. And so as a writer, if you're not, if I don't have a, some sort of deeper theme, um, there's really no point in me writing. That's just the kind of writer I am. And I didn't want to look at deeper themes back then because, um, because I was, you know, shattering um, all sense of, of uh, responsibility and, and any sort of healthy um, theme there, there could be for my life. So as far as writing the book, um, I had tried to reach out to him, actually, when I decided to write it in 2013, and we hadn't talked for a couple of years. Um, I don't know if his email changed. Um, I heard through the grapevine, because I still know some people who know some people who, him, who said that all of a sudden he did become hard to reach. Like, a lot of people were not able to reach him all of a sudden, and I don't know, maybe he was really busy touring or whatever. But I had put out some calls and emails and not gotten anything back, and then I... Um, uh, I I just, I just started focusing on the book, and I thought, well, I'll probably reach out to him again, which I did. I forget exactly when. It might have been the, the year the, I got the book deal, I think, or maybe right afterwards. Um, and I, I couldn't reach him, and I, I, left, I know I left a message with I did reach his road manager, and I left a message with him, but I, I never heard anything. And um, now that I look back, I think, well, I... I, I mean, I don't. I haven't heard anything since, and I don't really expect to. I don't know how he feels about it. I can guess, but honestly, he has a right to whatever he feels. Mm -hmm. And um, my only hope is that, it, at the very least, he found some of it enjoyable. Like maybe he enjoyed going down memory lane a little bit. I understand that it's difficult when somebody um, reveals anything about your past or your private life, and it was, you know, clearly in service to my greater themes, in service to my story, which was impossible to to um, pull apart from his. Um, but I did, I do also like to think that, you know, so much time has gone by, and, you know, he's so established as, as a beloved rock star that I just, I also knew that nothing I wrote was going to um, have, an, have any sort of negative effect on him, his career, or anything like that. So, you know, I, I, I haven't heard anything and, and I don't expect I will. That's but. such a good way to think about it, though. You know, he has a right to feel however he does feel about it. And this is your experience, too. It's not just his experience. So people who may have a problem or, you know, with women writing their own memoirs about the time that they've spent with the rock star who may think it's explo exploitive or that they're doing it for reasons that aren't about the healing of the person writing mm -hmm. the book, then, you know, they can just frig off. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a certain aspect to, you know, a rock star's life and his and their relationships that it's integral to that relationship. Like Joe's I came second to Joe's music. I I always knew that and I was fine with it. I to this day I'm fine with it. His music was a huge thing. It was a gift to the world. He was meant to do that, you know, and I I was a you know, I was the next thing of importance in his life. But his when when he got sober and when we broke up, I think that there was an aspect to the um, sort of abrupt way that it happened, or at least um, a certain um, uh, there was a sense of abandonment. I mean, he actually let it drag on longer than it normally would have because he, I think, didn't want to hurt me by breaking up with me long long before um, or long after it was time. 
but um, there were people in his life who didn't want him to associate with me, and I think that's one of the reasons he didn't try to help me more when he when I was really spiraling. I, I can't say that for sure, but it's definitely the sense that I got that he, you know, his handlers didn't want his new reputation as as the newly sober eagle to be too marred and um, you know and I was a mess and so there's some validity to that but at the same time he was the only person I knew who was sober and I was asking him for help and and uh, and he kept refusing to, to tell me about AA or take me to a meeting and so you know I do I, nothing made me happier than the fact that he got his career back and that he has just soared you know since then I mean I it, it's a comeback story of the of the century really it's a beautiful thing and he deserved every bit of it but um if if it weren't for his his um rock stardom i have to believe that he might have helped me get into a rehab or something you know mm -hmm. like he might have taken me to a meeting he might have and so when i wrote this book i thought you know um i managed to make it i found people to help me um but I kind of had a right to tell my story publicly because there was an aspect to his life that was very public that did affect me mm -hmm. negatively. Mm -hmm. And this almost in a way sort of balanced that out, you know? Yes. Um, and I, I have to believe that he's, you know, he's a very fair person. He's a very um, fair-minded person. He, I mean, I, I'm sure that he uh, understands why I wrote it. And um, he probably understands that his lifestyle which was out of his control to some degree, was damaging for someone who was so young and vulnerable as me. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I kind of hope that, that t to me, the, it's, it does sort of make a space for this book to come out without any, um, uh, hopefully any complaints or any hard feelings. Absolutely. And speaking about, you know, your complicated um, na the complicated nature of your relationship with Joe and you were talking earlier about, you know, your experiences um, in your stripping career. It really feels like all of your experiences have kind of led up to you becoming an intimacy coach and this incredible career that you have now. Uh, do you feel like you've just had a whole life of, you know, leading you there is like, was this fate? And, uh, we would just love for you to talk about being an intimacy coach and what that entails and, uh, you know, what it means to you. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I love talking about my work and, um, it's, it's so great that I sort of stumbled on this, um, career option in the first place. And I think it was probably 2015, um, maybe 2014. I, at one point I was thinking about, you know, I really need to um, find something more fulfilling. And I, I, I had always considered becoming a sex therapist, but I, um, I had not gone back to college. You know, once I got sober, I kind of got into real estate right away. And from there, I told you I went into stripping. And so, you know, the idea of going back to college was always really appealing to me, but just the timing wasn't right. I either didn't have the money or the time or I don't know. So around four, 2014 or 15, I was I was thinking about this again. Um, this was in, probably in between polishes, polishing uh, the manuscript draft number six or seven. I don't know. And so I was just online and scrolling through different colleges, and you know because. Uh, getting a degree in psychology or marriage and family counseling is one thing, but I very specifically was interested in sex therapy. 
And there's not a lot of colleges that actually um, focus on that. There's a few of them. And somewhere along the line, I went down the rabbit hole and I started following links and I ended up on on an intimacy coaching website. And I thought, well, what in the world is this? This is fascinating. You know, this is kind of right up my alley. My whole life since getting sober has been about trying to heal the the walls that went, went up, you know, the, um, trying to heal the wounds and drop the walls that went up in that painful breakup with Joe. And it was because I had become so vulnerable that, that um, I put up those walls. Everyone I was attracted to tended to be someone with a, you know, I like men, I like, I, you know, I tend to like men with strong personalities and I loved being in love. So I knew that, I had a habit of allowing the relationship to sweep me away and I would drop all my goals. And so all through my thirties, as I'm, you know, I got sober at 29 and all through my thirties, you know, I, I was very hesitant to date. And when I did, I wouldn't let anyone get too close. And I dated a lot of guys who lived out of state or I had a lot of like flings two weeks here, a weekend there or whatever. Um, but I was very, very lonely. I mean, I was desperate for genuine intimacy, but I was absolutely incapable of it. You know, I didn't love myself enough yet. I wasn't able to be my authentic self. I wasn't able to be, to let anyone see any side of me that I thought was less than really attractive. Like, you know, sometimes I can be really crabby and especially back then because I'd never slept. I was overworked and I hadn't yet to really get a handle on all those emotions that I had been, the anger that I've been stuffing all my life, you know, early sobriety, even for me, like it was a good five, six years before I was able to really, um, express my anger or fear or frustration in healthy ways. And so I didn't want to date anyone or let anyone get too close because they'd see that side of me being scared or frustrated or crying or depressed because I was dealing with a lot of depression. Um, and I, I just thought nobody's going to see how depressed I am and really love me or want to be with me. So I continued to have I dated. I kept putting myself out there little by little, and I was getting therapy. I had a wonderful talk therapist, um, but there were, you know, there was no intimacy coach around when I was in my 30s for me to hire to help me kind of speed up that process. What I had to do, because the best way to heal um, your intimacy issues is to go out there and experience intimacy. And so what I had to do was experience it in little increments by dating a little here, dating a little there, and trying each time to be my most authentic self, to let the guy get to know me just a little bit better, let him see me maybe not at my worst, but not at my best. (laughs) And it was a slow, long process. And at 39, exactly 10 years um, from like nine years and 10 months or something, from the day I got sober, I fell in love and um, had an amazing relationship with this guy uh, for about a year. And it was very healing because he saw, he he really got to know me. He saw every side of me, all my best sides, all my worst sides. He saw me scared. He saw me angry. He saw me depressed. He saw me, um, you know, all my, all my good qualities. And he loved me 100%. Um, the same for all of it, you know, like it was a really healing experience. And I, I learned how to, um, fight for my writing time because God love him. He did try to interfere with that. And so I was learning how to set boundaries in a relationship, how to be myself, how to, how to allow intimacy and explore that and, and enjoy it and, and, um, accept him for his imperfect, you know, sides as well. It was, it was a big adventure. Um, but it took me 10 years to get there. So, um, not too long after that, um, 
you know, I was sort of exploring a, a different work in, in that arena, but it was, um, it was again in like 2015 or so that I stumbled on this intimacy coaching site and then also um, the surrogate partner uh, training that I got because surrogate partner work and intimacy coaching um, have a lot of overlap. And so I applied for the training with the International Professional Surrogates Association, which is this amazing organization that sort of stems from directly from Masters and Johnson and the work that they were doing um, with uh, not just in emotional intimacy, but um, the way it manifests physically, you know, sexual dysfunctions or um, uh, dissociation or an, uh, uh, a touch aversion. There are a lot of ways that a fear of intimacy can manifest in a person that makes it impossible for them to date or have a relationship or experience any sort of emotional or physical or sexual intimacy. And so with my fascination and passion for healthy sexuality and sexual expression, my background working with men as a stripper and in other areas, um, and this new field of intimacy coaching, I just jumped in with both feet, you know, and, and then of course my personal experience, I just thought everything I've ever done, you know, I never knew where my experience, where I was going to be able to apply it. Where do you go from stripping? I mean, yeah. it's, you can become a salesperson because it does teach you amazing sales skills, but I hate sales unless I'm selling lap dances. Honest to God, I hate mm -hmm. every form of sales there is. It's just, so, um, I didn't know what I was going to do. I had a lot of, um, very specialized skills, and I didn't know where to use them. And then all of a sudden, I stumbled on this, and I was like, oh, this is my calling. This is where exactly where I'm meant to be. So it took a while to get um, the training because they're very selective about who they, you know, allow to do it. And then um, and that, I did that in 2016, immediately um, got a uh, built a website for intimacy coaching. I didn't need certification to be an intimacy coach, but for surrogate partnership um, to be supervised and certified by IPSA, I did. It was very intensive training. And so I've been interning for them for two years and doing that work. And um, those clients are dealing with intimacy issues and they have, um, they, they need to go at a slower pace. They, um, some of them have a lot of trauma in their past. And then my intimacy coaching clients are men, anyone from guys who need help um, learning how to be comfortable with a woman, uh, uh, initiate um, uh, a move, you know, or uh, just ascertain whether she's interested, go on a date, everything wow. from those early activities to how do I go in for a kiss? How do I... Um, uh, how do I make out with someone or um, uh, uh, develop any sort of touch, you know, um, um, intimate type of touch without being completely nervous and anxious? And, you know, a lot of these guys had a bad experience or two or they're just extremely um, shy or maybe they had some bullying or maybe they just went through a really difficult divorce and they have no mojo. Their confidence is shot. I get clients all across the board, all different ages from in their 20s to in their 60s, guys with no experience. They've had this issue all their life. They've never been on a good date. Other guys who had all kinds of mojo and then they had a horrible uh, divorce and now their confidence is shattered and they find they go on a date and all of a sudden they're you know, they're not sexually functioning in the way they used to. And it's a lot of times one of the most primary reasons um, they're coming to me is because they have some level of performance anxiety and um, they're not being in the moment or maybe they've been with someone for so long and they've 
they're so focused on being a good partner, a good lover, getting her needs met that they've lost touch with their own. And if you get a little older sometimes, um, you need to be able to focus on not just her body, but your own body. So most of what I do is about um, mindfulness, helping my clients, first of all, get in the moment, stay in the moment, find a place of relaxation. I create a safe space in session where they get to know me. We spend a lot of time getting to know each other. And so they, they, recognize me as a trust uh, someone who's not going to reject them not going to laugh at them not going to um make them feel embarrassed or uncomfortable or awkward or uh, ashamed um you know i'm it's a very open loving receptive safe space for them to communicate their needs to get in touch with their needs to have certain experiences um learning how to touch and be touched um that's and, the surrogate uh, partnership Piece, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. The surrogate partnership is, um, you know, there are exercises, there's a set of core exercises that we do. And, you know, the surrogate partner, um, by design, if it's in the client's best interest, you know, the um, mindfulness, communication, and touching exercises will gradually escalate into a sexual arena if that's in the client's best interest. It's a small, the sexual um, contact is actually a, a small percentage of the overall work, you know, because you're doing a number of sessions, three to six months sometimes or, or more. As an int- uh, intimacy coach, I use some of those exercises. You know, sometimes um, one of the most uh, common exercises I do is one of the first ones. It's just touching each other's hand and forearm and for a long period and just learning how to stay in the moment as opposed to um, that that spectatoring voice in your head when you're nervous. Am I touching her right? Is she enjoying this? Is it too fast? Is it too slow? Instead, just being present, letting me touch your arm and your hand, and then you take a turn, touch my arm and the hand. So some of these exercises are almost rudimentary seeming, but by and large, if somebody's experiencing performance anxiety, it's because they've, they've lost touch with that instinctual part of themselves that just loves, enjoys, and feels pleasure in touching someone else, having someone else touch them, the nerve ending stimulation, you know. So the it's a lot about, you know, sort of uh, retraining the brain, you know, um, uh, rebuilding or building new neural pathways um, from the ones that say, oh, when I touch my partner, um, uh, I, I get anxious. I don't know if I'm doing it right or I feel rejected or my um, sexual functioning doesn't kick in or it kicks in too fast. Okay, so that's where their neural pathway um, is taking them, and they come into session with me, and after one or three or six sessions, you know, just touching my arm, they they start to retrain the brain to stay in that sense of touch and just, um, you know, stop uh, feeling anxiety about the future or what I'm thinking and feeling and just stay in that um, that that sense of physical pleasure and that sense of intimate contact, you know, there's eye, there's everything from eye gazing um, to um, uh, communicating uh, desires or secret fantasies that you might not have ever um, said out loud because, you know, a lot of my clients grew up with sexual shame. Some of my clients, um, most of what we do is communication exercises. They just need someone to validate that they're not, you know, that they're, um, they're not abnormal or that their desires aren't um, gross or freaky. I mean, there's like, there's so much sexual shame in this, in this country that um, people walk around unable to even own their own 
desires and fantasies. Totally. So I know that I sound like I'm kind of all across the board, like I'm bouncing all over, but honestly, my work encompasses a lot. Mm-hmm. But it, what it comes down to is that um, very often if a person has walls up for any reason, whether they've been bullied or rejected or traumatized in any way, um, they have blocks to intimacy that will eventually show up physically. And whether that's through sexual dysfunction or a sense of dissociation or um, uh, um, uh, any number of other uh, um, other things, uh, awkwardness, um, you know, if they can experience a sort of um, uh, if they can experience communication and touch in a safe way, then their brain can sort of be reminded, like, "Oh, I, I got this. I can do this. I can, I can um, talk to. You. I can hit on. I can touch. I can um, be with a woman and." Um, and function normally. I mean, to send, you know, a lot of what I do is send them home with homework. There's a certain mm-hmm. amount of um, exercises that they're going to have to do at home on their own. And then there are, but, but even just looking into a woman's eyes and being able to, to speak openly about um, sexuality is completely novel to some of my clients, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I, when, one time I was with uh, somebody who is married and he just opened up his relationship and he and I felt like I was a part of the healing journey when I got to be that kind of person that we could communicate with and have an open kind of sexual relationship with. And it was so empowering and it was so healing and it was so good for him too. And then on the other hand, you think about the young guys who are only thinking about their own pleasure and picking up all of their um, moves from pornography and thinking that that's how a woman wants to have sex or make love. And so it's just this mindfulness piece that I think everybody should really be reminded of just in like just just asking people is this okay is this feel good for you and it's just communication it's so important and you're doing such important work Kristen you are so fascinating and oh you, you we are just so inspired by you thank you so much thank you thank you so much for saying that I do kind of feel like we're cut from the same cloth like I'm not surprised I, I First of all, I loved hearing that, like you were, because it's not just intimacy coaches or surrogate partners who are doing this type of thing. There are, I think that there are just, there's a small segment of the population, some male, some female, who just have a sense. They they sort of are in touch with their sexuality, and whoever they're with is affected by that. And some people really need that, need to be affected. And you know, sometimes just seeing you own your sexuality with you in the middle of an encounter, just seeing, just hearing you communicate your needs gives him permission to do so. But other times, you know, it even, there are some women, you know, who, who just, I say women, there are some people, but frequently women, who just um, uh, have this receptivity and this empathic nature so they can pick up on their where their partner is feeling a little blocked and they can kind of nudge him this way or nudge him that way or open the door or you know bring that out in him or make him feel safe i think a lot of times men feel their most authentic when they are aroused it's it's when they're most likely to take risks and um you know and uh um try harder to um 
to open up and just be courageous and maybe whether that's doing something that they've always wanted to do or saying something they've always wanted to say, you know, if, because if they have the inspiration of a beautiful woman next to them, who's, <laughs> you know, that's, that's going to be the one thing that's going to be powerful enough to make him move through that fear that's been blocking him. And, you know, there are women all over the world who are doing this um, here and there who aren't being paid, but, you know, hopefully I, I get calls from all over the country. I've had guys come in from out of the country to see me because intimacy coaching is somewhat new and the bigger cities, you know, all have one or two or three or, or like, you know, the Bay Area probably has dozens. But and hopefully in a few years, you know, there'll be even more. Um, but until then, you know, there are women who've been doing this work just because it's in their nature. Like clearly, you know, you know, we have some of us have this uh, this innate sense of openness and, and also a sense of safety. And a man can sense that and he'll respond to it. And, you know, you you could have changed this guy's life. For the rest of his life, his, his sex is just going to get better and better because he he was with someone who allowed him that first sort of um, foray into authenticity or whatever. You know what I mean? I just yeah. I think it's amazing. And I think we've pretty much come full circle in terms of like, you know, being that, being that person who allows people to... To be their best selves, yeah. they're open, their authenticity, their creativity, and their connection to creation. So, I mean, I feel like I could yeah. talk to you for so much Forever. longer. We have yeah. so many more questions. You're so multifaceted. And I hope that this isn't the last time that we get to speak with you. Yeah. Oh, it's been an honor. I This has just been delightful for me. I could talk to you guys forever, too. I feel like I've gone on forever, and I hope I didn't monopolize the conversation. But honestly, no, we it's love it. Yeah. This is yeah. a dream conversation yeah. for us. Um, uh, us, too. I think that the paths have led here. And um, uh, this has been one of the most enjoyable things to listen to and ask you about. So thank you for being courageous and open and all of those kinds of things. So we'll just kind of finish off with, with you because you, um, at this stage in your journey, what are you grateful for and what are you getting excited about? Oh gosh, uh, thank you for giving me the chance to say this because gratitude is so important and I, I, I like to remind myself all the time because um, it's so easy to not be grateful. And I, w once the book came out and I realized I was more stressed out than anything, I actually had to have a little talk with myself and say, look girl, you just did something you've wanted to do since you were 11 years old and you need to start focusing on the glass half full bit of this and um and all of a sudden all the little things like my fears that um uh that i might do a clumsy interview or i might um you know what all the little fears that come up when all of a sudden you're sort of thrust into the spotlight all that's just sort of disappeared and even even when I feel overwhelmed, like just last night I was feeling really overwhelmed. I had a few things sort of dump on me in, at the last minute, and I, I just realized my biggest complaint right now is I have too many good things to, to do. I, you know, I have um, too many amazing things are coming to fruition. And so I'm just – I'm really – grateful above all for my sobriety because none of this would be happening otherwise I'm tremendously grateful for all the people in my life who have supported me like my sister and my my clients have been amazing you know that's you know these these businessmen I work with a lot of men who have who are successful businessmen and when they you know hear that I, they give me great business advice and when they heard about the book and everybody's just been very encouraging and um, so I just feel very very grateful and fortunate for the way everything has worked out. I, I think I am. Um, yeah, what was the other half of that question? What, am, what excites about? me? 
I am excited about, you know, continuing along this path with, with this work. I feel like there's so many... There's so much more to learn and so much more to impart. There's some new trainings I want to get as soon as I find time, which Lord knows when that's going to be. I love it. You know, I know that I have a lot to offer my clients right now. There's some really interesting work being done. Um, Somatica is a certain type of um, uh, relational coaching. Like uh, right now I'm coaching men only. And in time, I would love to be able to start coaching couples and women. I feel like, you know, you have to go with your strengths. And my experience and my affinity has always been to work with men. Um, but you know, women, everybody can benefit from, um, from improved intimacy, I think. And, and so I just want to get more and more training and continue down this path. I don't know where it's going to lead, but, um, you know, my next book is going to be about it. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, so, so expanding my coaching business and writing a book at some point in the next couple of years would be great. That is amazing. And thank you so much, Kristen, for sharing your story and all of your insight. This has just been such a magnificent conversation. I feel like we're both so inspired right now, and I'm sure our listeners are going to be just as inspired by you. Um, For any of our listeners who want to check out more about you, um, where can we find you? Well, I have a few websites. Um, The book is... Uh, it's got its own website, and that is KristenCaseyAuthor.com, and Kristen is spelled with an I-N, K-R-I-S-T-I-N-C-A-S-E-Y, author.com. And then my coaching site is KristenCaseyConsulting.com, and then the surrogate partner site is linked to the coaching site, so you'll find it there, but you can also just go to Surrogate Partner Central Texas if you're interested in in that specific um, aspect of my work, and uh, I think that's... Those are my only websites. <laughs> I see I have so much going on. I don't even know how many I have. We'll link them up. Kristen Casey, you're amazing. <laughs> uh, you guys are amazing. Thank you so much. I can't tell you. This is so fun. I am going to post all about it. So I oh, can't wait okay. to, to hear it. And I can't wait to hear more. I, I listen to your podcast more. I'm not a big podcast listener, but I have listened to yours probably almost as much as any other. No way. Oh, oh that's yeah. awesome. I love it. I love it. Well, there you have it. An amazing chat with Kristen Casey, such a champion for women and such an incredible life lived. We seriously can't wait to see the amazing work she has in store and the other books that she has up her sleeve and possibly some screenplays. Yes. I love how she speaks about embracing an emotional life, how it's so important to have gratitude. I know that I'm truly grateful for this interview. Yes. Make sure to check out all the amazing shows on our network, Rock and Roll Archaeology. And until next time, Rock and Rollers, we, we love, love you. Muses and Stuff is produced by Chantelle Lemieux and Link Soler. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Please visit rockandrollarchaeology.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.